Hey, good morning. Um, if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. Um, and, you know, last week, I believe, we only looked at one verse. Well, this week, we're looking at only one chapter, uh, chapter two. So if you'll turn there, uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Bailey Wagner. I'm uh, the youth guy here. Um, if we haven't had a chance to meet, we'd love to drink coffee with you after the service. And we can beat the heat with hot coffee together. It'll be a good time. So again, that's Jonah 2. We're going to read the whole thing. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word and as we participate in it together. So listen, this is God's word. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars in the pit, O Lord my God. When, I was, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You guys can have a seat. Let's pray together and ask God to help us with this passage and to be with us. God, our Father, we are thankful that you're personal, that you're a God who speaks to us, and you give us your word today out of the book of Jonah. And you give us your word because you love us, so we can know who you are, so we can know the depths of our sin and the deep need we have to be reconciled to you. Lord, in this time, would you allow us, as we're tired, as we've wrangled kids to get in here, as we've traveled, our tanks are on empty, and we're asking you to fill us up. Would you open our eyes to what you would have to say? Ultimately, in this text, would we see your son, the Lord Jesus, as more lovely and beautiful? And we ask this in his name. Amen. So this summer, if you've been with us, we've been studying the book of Jonah together, and in it, we've really been focusing on God's mercy and asking, you know, how do we see God's mercy in the book of Jonah? And so because we're kind of in this point of this book where we're seeing a prayer, a lot has happened before, and I think a recap is going to be really helpful for us. So before this prayer, before what we just read takes place, God calls Jonah, who's his prophet, to go to Nineveh in order to preach to them and call them out for their wickedness and tell them that God's going to destroy them, essentially. So Jonah hears this, and like a really bad prophet, like the bad prophet he is, he doesn't go where God calls him. He hops in a ship and goes in the opposite direction. And he goes in the opposite direction to Tarshish because he doesn't want, he knows that deep down what God is really trying to do is to be merciful. And he wants to stop that mercy from being spread. And ultimately, um, as Jonah runs away, God chases after him and throws this big, this big storm on the sea um, that causes a lot of uh, turmoil. 
And Jonah is ultimately thrown overboard by the crew of the ship in order to stop the storm. And then when this happens, when Jonah hits the water, God appoints a great fish, I don't know what kind of fish, but a very large fish, to swallow him whole and ultimately to save his life. So this morning, as we look at Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish, we get a glimpse of his true colors, right? We get to see that Jonah's not a hero in the story by any means. And what we're going to be really for mercy. And in some ways, as he's crying out for mercy, he's making the case that he deserves mercy. He says that he deserves it, that it should be all his. And what I want us to notice before we really dive into this prayer is that Jonah is really concerned with mercy all of a sudden. He's not running from it anymore in this, in this passage because it's all about him. It's because it's for him and him alone. He thinks that God's mercy is about him. It's about who he is, what he's done, what he thinks he deserves. But what we're going to learn this morning through this prayer is this, that God's mercy is for us, but it's not about us. And we're going to break this down into three points. If you've got a bulletin on page five, you'll see these. So if you're a note taker, that page is for you. But we're going to see assured salvation, Jonah's irreverent longings, and misplaced mercy. So let's dive right in. Look at um, the beginning of this prayer in verse two and uh, verse three with me. It reads, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. What I want to highlight here and bring your attention to is this personal language Jonah's using right here. There's a lot of, I did this, and God responded this way. I did that, and God responded this way. And what I think when we really look at that, what we see is that Jonah is one really sure, and he has assurance that God not only hears his prayers in the belly of the fish, but that God is going to show him mercy. And that's true, right? That God will hear his prayers, and God is showing him mercy, because even sending this giant fish to swallow him up is an act of mercy, because Jonah was saved from a watery death by being swallowed by the fish. But what I want to highlight is that Jonah's stance towards mercy changes when he becomes the recipient of it. That all of a sudden, this prophet who's running from a merciful God begins to embrace God. And he begins to seek mercy. And this is because he wants God's mercy all for himself, right? He doesn't want God to use him as an instrument of mercy to a foreign group of people who are known for their wickedness. But when Jonah... Right, God's prophet, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, when he feels the need for his mercy, he embraces God's mercy because he thinks this mercy is rightfully mine, that it's mine for the taking. His assurance doesn't come from this deep-seated belief that God is a God who shows mercy and who shows kindness to undeserving sinners. But this belief really comes from the fact that he thinks God is very narrow with his mercy, that God doesn't widely show mercy. Instead, he thinks that he, checks, he can check off the boxes because of who he is, where he's from, and what he's done. He's sure that he's earned his spot, and he doesn't want anyone else to have it. He doesn't want anyone else to get what he thinks that he rightfully deserves. How Jonah embraces this mercy 
Um, it kind of looks like this. So I'm going to invite you to turn on your imagination with me for a second. Imagine you go home today, you eat a good lunch, and you walk outside, you know, maybe you left your Bible in your car, I don't know, and you notice your neighbors across the street, no one's home, but something seems weird about their house. And then you look closer and you think, is that smoke like kind of coming out around the door? Is that smoke coming out of the windows? Is that an orange glow from in the living room? Like that doesn't look right. Um, and so you think, wow, I think their house is on fire. But you, you know, instead of calling 911, you say, well, they must have left the candle burning. Or they probably left the stove on. Or they did something reckless. Like who am I to stop this house from burning down, right? You say, I believe that what comes around goes around. And the best way to learn to prevent a house fire in your mind is to just have one happen, and then you learn how not to do it again. So you see this, right, and you say, well, like, I'm not going to call 911. These resources are better somewhere else, right? So imagine that's kind of how you respond to this. But then a few weeks later, you're in your house, you're watching The Office on DVD, because it's not on Netflix anymore, and you're sitting on the couch, and in a distant room, you hear an electric beep, a you know, and it's your, it's your smoke detector beeping, which means change the battery, right? But because you all of a sudden think there's a fire in my house, even though there's no sign of a fire, you call 911 and you have the firemen come to your house and they see there's no fire and they just change your nine volt battery. What is, you know, kind of hilarious about that and really ironic is that you would not call 911 for a real emergency. You wouldn't call it for someone who actually needs it, but you'd call it for yourself, right? This is kind of how Jonah relates to God's mercy. Jonah ultimately is saying that Nineveh's wickedness is not his problem, that they deserve what's coming to him. And he wants Nineveh to see God's wrath, and he thinks in the belly of the whale, he thinks he's the one who deserves mercy. Um, and we really kind of see this posture Jonah has here carry into our next point. Um, and we'll apply this all kind of at the end. But look at these irreverent longings. In verses 4 and 7, it says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. Then I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. What I want to draw our attention to here um, takes place in verse 4 and in verse 7. And it's these references to the temple. Right? It kind of bookends this little section. Um, so Jonah is acknowledging God has driven him away from his sight. And he's recounting this feeling of drowning, this feeling of hopelessness, and how God rescued him. And his response to these things is that he's confident that he will see God one day and he will be in the temple with God again. Um, so normally I'm not really a geography guy. But I think it's helpful here as Jonah thinks about the temple, like it's a literal place and it's in Jerusalem, right? It's in the nation of Israel. It's the city where God's presence on earth is found. And Jonah, right, is in the belly of the fish in the middle of the ocean somewhere, right? He's just kind of at the mercy 
of the fish wherever he is. But this longing Jonah has to be at the temple, it really seems to be a good thing, right? He wants to be back with God's people. He wants to worship God where God is found in the temple. He wants to be in God's presence. But what I think we should consider here is that Jonah wants to get involved in religious things while avoiding God's, God's mission to show mercy to these foreign people. He wants to worship God, but he doesn't want to obey God. He wants to be with God's people, but he wants to actively keep others from joining the family. And in some ways, um, actually, it needs to be pointed out that Jonah, when he's even talking about this and showing that he wants to be with his people who are God's people, that these people were chosen by God to be heirs to the promise of Abraham, that Jonah's longing to be with his people who worship God correctly. And these people are in complete contrast to the Ninevites where Jonah's being called. The Ninevites are not descendants of Abraham. They are people who worship false gods. They do what is evil in God's sight. And in some ways, Jonah is saying, God, I know you're sending me, your good Hebrew man, back to your people and back to your city where I belong, instead of preaching to those people, instead of preaching to those wicked people. Ultimately, Jonah's desire to approach God is to approach God on his own terms. To approach God in the temple like the good Jewish man that he is. That his desire is for re religious formality. His desire is not to have a personal relationship and to experience God personally. He wants to keep God at an arm's length. And he wants to relate to him in ways that he finds safe and that he finds convenient. So earlier, we saw you know, that Jonah re is relying on his own righteousness for deliverance, right? Who he is, what he's done. And we see that continuing here, that he's not only relying on his own righteousness, but he's relying on his religious reverence to God to save him. And we're seeing that he trusts in the fact that he wants to be proper when approaching God. And he trusts that over, or he trusts in that. Let me rephrase this. We're seeing that Jonah trusts in the fact that he wants to be proper with God, and he trusts in the things that God has given him to help him experience who God is over God himself. All right, he's putting ritual, which are designed to help Jonah connect with God, over who God actually is. So recently, uh, Liz and I, my wife, we celebrated four years of marriage, um, and someone was asking us, what do you guys do for date nights? Uh, which is a weird question because we just kind of like eat somewhere and like spend the evening talking, which apparently is a really good thing, people like to say. Um, but if we want to go big, we will call and make a reservation at a really nice Italian restaurant. Uh, and I know what you're thinking, it's not Olive Garden, okay? So don't get your hopes up. Um, but for two people from like Davidson County, North Carolina, making a reservation somewhere feels like a really big deal. And we're in the big city, so you got to do what you got to do here. Um, but when you go on a date with someone, right, whether it's someone new, someone you're seeing, your spouse, like if you're married, you should date your spouse. You know, I think we know that. Um, the date serves as a way to connect with someone. The date isn't an end in and of itself, but it's a means to an end. 
Like the whole purpose of a date is allow is to allow you to connect with someone, and it's kind of the avenue in which that takes place. So, like, if you go on a date with your spouse, right, and you go to my favorite Italian spot and you order the chicken parm, and the chicken parm is like your focus all night, you're missing the point of the date, right? Like, chicken parm is a gift from God, but it, all right, it's not the point here. Um, and so, what, like. I submit to you is that what Jonah's doing here with this holy temple language, with this looking to the temple and looking at worship as kind of this ultimate thing, is he's focusing on the chicken parm, so to speak. That he's not looking at who God is and wanting to experience God and have a relationship with God, but he wants to do the safe rituals that make him feel close to God. And so even as we consider this and start to kind of make application to our own life, I want to I wanna be careful because so many of us in this room, myself included, love what we're doing right now. Like I, I don't know about you, but I love Sunday morning and fellowshipping with y'all and singing and hearing God's word preached. And that's a really good thing. And it's a good thing because when we come here, we don't see this as a time where we can earn God's favor by sitting in the pew. But it's a time where we can worship God for who he is and what he's done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Jonah's desire for these religious things, it presses us to ask ourselves this. How do we try to approach God on our own by using good religious or good spiritual things? Um, How are we using these good religious or spiritual things to serve ourselves because we think that we can earn God's favor with them? Let me ask you a couple questions. Do you think that having a vast knowledge of the Bible will make God happy with you? Do you think that God will see that and count it to me as righteousness because I know a lot about the Bible? Or do you use the Bible to know who God is and his plan of redemption that's ultimately seen in the person and work of Jesus? Right? Reading the Bible, knowing the Bible is a good thing. We should do that. But when that becomes anything other than our avenue for knowing who God is, right? we're using it in a self-serving way. Let me ask you this. Do you think that you, being someone who's maybe lived and grown up in the church your whole life, that you can cash in the chips that you think you've earned one day because you've put your time in the pew? right? Do you think God sees you in church and, th- and you think, man, he's really happy with me. I've earned his love because I've been here and I've put in the time. Is that, is that something that's true for you? Jonah, in this, thinks God is transactional. He thinks everyone will get what they deserve, and he's God's prophet. He's the one who thinks that he deserves mercy because of his, his righteousness and his religious uprightness, because of his piety. And he thinks at the same time, right, Nineveh deserves wrath because of their pagan worship and wickedness, which they do. Both Jonah and Nineveh deserve God's good displeasure for thinking they can earn salvation for worshiping false gods. And ultimately, we're going to see that play out in this last point, um, which we're calling misplaced mercy. So look at these last few verses with me. It says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Jonah 
as he's starting to land the plane on this prayer, he says something that is true, and he says something that's at the same time incredibly ironic. He concludes this prayer by saying that we don't receive the hope of God's steadfast love when we put our hope in idols. And what he's saying is 100% correct. When we place our faith in an idol, we don't have any hope in God's love for us. Our hope is actually placed in the idol. And I want to camp out here on kind of this idol talk for a second. Um, idols are words that, like, if, we, if we're in the church for a long time, we hear, but we probably don't know what it means. Um, and if you don't know what it means, that's really an okay thing. It's a good thing. Um, idols are the things we look to and that we think, if I get that, I'm going to be good. I'll be enough. I'll have everything that I need. I'm never, if I get that thing, I'll never want anything else again. Um, idols are the things that we look to other than God um, and that we set our hope on and that we stake our lives on. Think of money. I think money is something we can all relate to, uh, unless you're a child. Sorry, kids, you don't have that much money yet. Money is something we all have, and we need a certain amount of to survive, right? Like money in and of itself, not a bad thing, not a sinful thing at all. But when you start daydreaming about money, right? When you start thinking, what would it be like to earn over a million dollars a year, right? When you begin to think that money would be the key to your happiness, it would be the key to your welfare. Like when you look at money and you say, if I can hit this arbitrary number, I'm good. I'm not going to need anything else. When we look at money that way, it becomes an idol. It's true. And at the same time, it is incredibly ironic because he's completely blind to his own idols of self-righteousness and piety. That even as he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love, he's saying, look at me, God. Look how good I am. I don't serve other gods. I'm not a pagan. I'm a Hebrew man. I'm your prophet. I worship you correctly. He's saying, hey, I don't pay regard to vain idols like some people do. And then this Jonah, right, he thinks he's crushing it. He thinks that he deserves God's mercy because he's earned it. And he's so bold to really call out anyone else who pays regard to a vain idol. But really, what Jonah says is damning. It's because he knows that worshiping your idols means that you reject God's steadfast love. And he's blind to the fact that that's exactly what he's doing. Um, I went to college at Appalachian State, go Nears. Um, and I was involved with a campus ministry called RUF. Um, RUF was every week we would have a large group where we would sing songs and the campus minister would preach. Um, and one year our campus minister asked a couple upperclassmen, when I was an upperclassman, to kind of sit at some tables outside of the student union. And if anyone had a question about what they heard, he would say, go talk to those kids sitting at the tables. And I did it for like a year and only like one person talked to me during that whole time, which is probably more on me than on everyone else. Um, but this is the story of the one kid who came up to me. Uh, this kid, he came up to me and, and he had just heard a sermon. We were going through the fruit of the spirit and we were talking about joy. And so he came up to me and said, Bailey, I've been a Christian my whole life and I've never experienced Christian joy. I've never experienced joy in the gospel. 
And so we talked for a few minutes uh, and really just kind of set up time to get coffee the next day. So we get coffee the next day, and then that kind of turns into a weekly thing for about a year where I just got to know him and spent time with him. Um, but about a month, maybe two months into meeting with each other, we were talking about things he struggles with. And so I just kind of point blank asked him what his relationship to lust and pornography was, because that's just such a common thing on the college campus. It's common for men. Um, and what he said, like his response, will probably stick with me forever. Because he smiled like, oh man, I've, I've really got a good story for you. And he said, when I was in high school, I, was, I struggled with these things, and I was in the, an accountability group, and we had an older man who was like our mentor. So one day they were meeting, and this man just encouraged these guys, said, hey, every man struggles with these things. And he meant that as like, you're not alone, right? Like you need to talk to people about this. But what this kid heard was every man struggles with this. And he thought, I don't want to be like everyone else. If everyone else does this, I don't want to be like them. So, right, he kicked it, cold turkey, never touched these things again. And as he's telling me this, he's got this big smile on his face, and he's like, look how good I'm doing, right? Like, everyone struggles with this except me. Like, look at my righteousness. And what he was completely blind to, and the reason he felt no joy, is because he was blind to his self-righteousness, and it was eating him alive. Because he thought, my performance is really tied to how God views me. And he was wrong, right? This is exactly what's happening with Jonah. That Jonah thinks he's earning God's mercy. He thinks he's, he's operating at 100%, that he's doing so well. All the while, his, his self-righteousness and his piety are eating him alive. So much of what we've seen today funnels down to this, that we can do exactly what Jonah does, that we can put our hope and our faith in something other than God's steadfast love, and then in our own self-righteousness, we can think that we're not doing that. We can think that we're doing the exact opposite. So first, I think we have to ask, as we just think about this in our own lives, what are we placing our hope in? Is it relationships? For you, do you place your hope in relationships, whatever kind of relationships they are, by thinking that if you have a good, healthy relationship, if you think that my life will be fulfilled if I can have this, that you'll never feel alone, that you'll never feel out of control. Is your hope in your job? Are you looking to your job to give your life meaning and fulfillment that you so desperately think you need? And so are you putting in long, hard hours because you think if I do well at my job, I'm gonna matter, right? Then I'll be okay, I'll be enough. Is it politics? Do you look to the outcome of an election to dictate whether you have hope in the future or not? And as we ask ourselves these things, as we kind of fill in the blanks in our own hearts, we need to also ask, how do we just in our self-righteousness ignore our idols? Right? Do you justify your, your idol found in relationships because you think that's what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself? Right? You think... I'm just going to throw everything I have into my relationships because that's what God wants me to do, even though it's not. Do you tell yourself that being a workaholic is okay? Because you're just trying to convince yourself as you work 80 hours a week that you're just really glorifying God with your work, that he's happy about this, that it's okay. 
Are you convinced that God indeed wants you to be concerned with politics and to place your hope in them and to stake your life on them? Do you think God wants you to do that? Is that how you justify that sin? We can so easily be blind to our own sin in the same way Jonah is here. And only by God's grace are we able to see it and able to turn away from it. So much of our passage today points us to the fact that Jonah in the belly of the fish is not repenting, that he's not seeing his sin and he's not turning away from it. And instead, he's using this prayer that really kind of on the surface seems beautiful to say that he thinks he deserves the mercy that he's found, that he's the rightful recipient of it. And for all the things Jonah gets wrong, I do think we need to give him credit. There's something he really does get right. Look at verse 9 with me, if you've got your Bible, the last line. It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then in verse 10, we see that God spoke to the fish, and the fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. Salvation doesn't belong to Jonah. His own merit doesn't earn it. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and it's ultimately all about him. It's about his free grace to sinners who run from him, who disobey him, who defy him, and who hate his mercy. And ultimately, who Jonah points us to is Jesus. And he points us to it in this way that's not like the direct connection where you're like, look at Jonah in this positive way and look at Jesus in this positive way. But we see Jonah, we see Jonah be the negative to what Jesus does. Like Jonah... Jonah runs from God's will. Jesus fully submitted to God's will. Jonah thinks that he has earned God's favor when he, in fact, could never do that. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law, and he gives us his reward for that. Jonah hated the idea that God is merciful, and he shows mercy to people who he thinks don't deserve it. Jesus is so, Jesus embraced God's mercy to the point where he took on God's wrath and God's displeasure so we could experience the mercy of God. We can't earn our salvation, and no amount of our own merit could ever be good enough to atone for our sins. And we're going to land the plane on this. Left to ourselves, we'll do anything and everything we can to try to earn God's favor even though it's an impossible task for sinners like you and for me. But what that leads us to is the person and work of Jesus, that when we place our faith in him for the first time, he unites himself to us. He takes our sin on himself, and he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his perfect obedience. So when God looks at you, when you've put your faith in Jesus, he doesn't see your anger. He doesn't see your lust. He doesn't see the ways you sin every day, but he sees the perfection, the perfect obedience, and the righteousness of our Lord Jesus. And we're not condemned in our sin because of this. Through Jesus, we're saved from it. And this is a free gift. It's something we don't earn, and instead it's something that we can receive knowing we did nothing to get it, and we can rest in it, right? We don't have to strive to earn our salvation. We don't have to look to our own merit to make us right with God. In Jesus, we can rest in the fact that God loves you and calls you his because of the blood of Jesus. And this is good news because this free gift of salvation comes from God alone. 
that we could never lose it because we didn't earn it. It's secure. So Jonah, this reluctant prophet who spent three days in the belly of the fish, points us to Jesus, God in the flesh, who dwelt among us, who willingly died and spent three days in the grave for us to secure salvation for undeserving sinners like you and me. Jonah's right. Salvation indeed belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word in the ways that it cuts us, in the ways that you show us our own sin, and in that our own need for your son, the Lord Jesus, to be our savior. As we go forth from here, God, would you drive your word into our hearts? Would you show us the ways that we try to earn your love? And would you, in Christ, help us to rest in the righteousness of Jesus, in your love, that we would know you and be secure in the fact that you love us and you're not going anywhere. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.